It all started when I was in the woods. I was walking and I see a tall, dark figure in a dark suit. And my only thought was where was its face? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get to it. The Slenderman, also known as Slenderman, is a fictional supernatural character that originated as a creepypasta internet meme created by Something Awful forum user Eric Nudson in 2009. He is depicted as a thin, unnaturally tall humanoid with featureless head and face wearing a black suit. Stories of the Slenderman commonly feature him stalking, abducting, and traumatizing people, particularly children. The Slender Man is not confined to a single narrative, but appears in many desperate or disparate, meaning different, works of fiction, typically composed online. Beginning in 2014, a moral panic occurred over the Slender Man after readers of his fiction were connected to several violent acts, particularly the fatal stabbing of 12-year-old girl in Makisha, Wisconsin. The stabbing inspired the documentary Beware the Slender Man, which was released in 2016. The Slender Man was created June 10, 2009, on a thread in Something Awful Internet Forum. The thread was a Photoshop contest in which users were challenged to create paranormal images. Poster Eric Knudsen, under the pseudonym Victor Surge, contributed two black and white images of groups of children to which he added a tall, thin, spectral figure wearing a black suit. Although previous entries had consisted solely of photographs, Serge supplemented his submission with snatches of text, supposedly from witnesses, describing the abductions of the group of children and giving the character the name The Slender Man. The quote under the first photograph read, We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them, but it persisted. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. 1983, photographer unknown, presumed dead. The quote under the second photograph read, One of two revered, recovered photographs from Sterling City Library Blaze, notable for being taken the day before 14 children vanished, and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformities cited as film defects by officials. Fire at the library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986 photographer Mary, Jan Mary Thomas missing since June 13, 1986. These additions effectively transformed the photographs into a work of fiction. Subsequent posters expanded upon the character, adding their own visual or textual con contributions. The Story of the Slender Man, the Internet's Own Monster, written by John Biggs. This comes to us from techcrunch.com. Every generation creates its own monsters. Folktales tell of witches and worms in the woods, my TV-infused generation feared Jaws in lakes and Bloody Mary in the mirror. This generation gets its monsters from the internet. 
Slenderman is a pure product of electronic media. He appears in places we rarely frequent these days, abandoned, crumbling halls, deep woods, a playground with rickety steel jungle gyms. He is a, suburb- a suburban ghoul. ghoul with his own history and his own methodology, and of late, he has become the object of controversy controversy during an attack in Wisconsin, during which two girls stabbed another in order to appease Slenderman's dark needs. It was a horrible story, and it underlies how little we understand about psychology and a generation weaned on the internet, and how images can morph from fiction to fact in the course of half a decade. Slendy. Slenderman first appeared in on Something Awful Forum under a created titled Create Paranormal Images. One user, Slidebite, said, You just know a couple of good ones are going to eventually make it to the paranormal websites and be used as genuine. He was right. The first image of Slim- Slenderman, all of, of a tall, out-of-focus figure next to a tree, was, be- was accompanied by a bit of text that sounds a like dialogue but had a badly translated horror game other posters added their own interpretations of the material creating a backstory that stretched out to the 16th century germany even to 5000 bc the creator victor surge added a few more photos while other visitors created their own one particularly clever image is modified woodcut In the original, a skeleton takes a child from its parents, perhaps into death. In the modified version, the skeleton has long arms and legs, and its misshapen skull is hidden by the eaves of the house. Over the intervening months, something awful posters and fanfiction enthusiasts added to the corpus. He gained a specific definition, courtesy of a poster on Yahoo Answers in 2011, two years after the original post. Slenderman is a supernatural creature that is described as appearing as a normal human being, but is described as being eight feet tall, has vectors and extra appendages that are described as sharp as swords. The creature is known to stalk humans and cause many disappearances. He is described as a shadow creature that is missing a face. The creature fits into many mythologies and legends from nations such as Germany and the Celts, which bring up the possibility that he could be real. The man named Victor Serge found his legend and made it his own, in which he called him Slenderman. The Slenderman is not exactly evil, according to mythology, but Victor Serge's version shows him as an evil creature that stalks humans to kill. In mythology, he was actually trying to save you from a painful death by taking you to the underworld early. Oh, that's nice. Taking you to the underworld early to save you from a painful death. Slenderman is a product of this century. He appears and havoc follows. He murders in undescribable ways, or he compels others to murder. He is a dark god in an age of digital media, and he fills the empty place between the news and the unknown. Interestingly, Slenderman was born of the previous generation's boogeyman. From a long interview with Slenderman's creator, Nudson, aka Victor Surge, says, I was mostly influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King, specifically his short stories, the surreal imaginings of William S. Burroughs, and a couple of games of survival horror, like Silent Hill and Resident Evil. 
I feel the most direct influences were Zach Parsons' The Insidious Beast, the Stephen King's short story The Mist, and the essay tale regarding the rake. Reports of so-called shadow people, Mothman, and the mad gasser Mattoon. I use these to formulate a something whose motivations can barely be comprehended and causes general unease and terror in a general population. The key word there is terror. Slenderman does not directly kill his victims. Instead, he encourages others to in order to please him. Interestingly, the place he haunts are all but gone now. Thanks to breathless news coverage of murder and mayhem, children are rarely allowed to wander in the woods alone or play in abandoned buildings anymore. In fact, that he exists at all is a testament to the eerie pull of these places. He's the ghost in the parking lot patrolled by border, board guards and CCTV cameras. He's the story that keeps you up at night in the center of a city full of 8 million people. He's not Osama bin Laden or your father's PTSD but is instead something far easier to understand. In a world that no longer harbors nameless dread, in which every monster has a name and GPS coordinates, he is a welcome refuge into the imagination. One popular video game created around the mythos involves walking through a darkened forest surrounded by chain link fence. All you have to do is find eight pieces of paper tacked to nearby trees. As you find the papers, the buzzing of crickets and rustling of photorealistic trees change to steady pounding. Slenderman is afoot. He doesn't kill you. You simply disappear in a cloud of electronic snow. Forums and video series were filled with fan fiction and content. The, very, the quality varies widely, but has grown oddly popular. One popular web series, Marble Hornets, is described as found footage of a man haunted by Slenderman. Most of the footage is mundane B-rolls of woods and country roads. Then every so often, Slenderman appears by fuzzing out the screen or pushing one of the characters into a violent coughing fit. There are no demons screaming gotcha. Instead, you get an endless, nameless dread. Wanting to find out the draw, I asked on the forums and chat rooms for input on the phenomena. One Reddit fan wrote, I like him because these creepypastas try to scare you with blood gore and, if you're lucky, hyper-realistic blood. Slenderman scared me with psychological horror, making me scared of fields, trees, and sometimes nothing. He made me as paranoid as I've ever been in my life, and I love the thrill. His design is simple and terrifying because it can make him visible in a field or invisible in a forest. This humanoid figure makes him seem real like him stalking you can actually happen. I think the biggest thing that makes him interesting is that nobody has any full idea what happens when he gets you. Another poster said they like Slenderman because he's relentless. Slenderman hunts you. He doesn't bang on your door, claw at your walls, or howl at the moon. He's just there, standing, waiting in the corner of your eyes. It's bogus, you know it. You're just seeing things because you're tired as shit, or it's Jake pulling your leg. Then it gets real, and you have to pull away. Despite your best efforts, Slender is still there, always standing, always waiting, always watching. Sadly, he's also taken on a life of its own. To understand what Slenderman has become of late, all you have to do is watch a, a Twitter stream of mentions. In 2014, Slenderman is now Slendy. 
a quasi-comical, quasi-serious figure that has taken on a life of its own. The feed is full of game walkthroughs and links to creepypasta, essentially fan fiction, as well as bits of doggerel that sound like early Eminem lyrics passed through Hogwarts. <laughs> An example of this is Blackest Slendy Suit, Obiki is the creepypasta root, Cold is Jeff's Knife, Ending Your Life, Red is Blood, Crimson Warm Flood. Slendy is a sort of goblin that posters us to scare themselves. Sadly, he has also become a focal point of madness. And then it goes into the story of the two 12-year-old girls who killed their friend to please uh, Slenderman. And we'll get into that separately. Alright, so after we talk about the girls, um, it goes to... Where the Slenderman mythos goes from here is anyone's guess. He is a new villain, a new scapegoat, and a new demon. He won't be the last of his kind, but he is the first pure product of the internet. A digital demon that haunts websites and sometimes spills over into the real world. Thankfully, no one has been killed in, this, in his honor. The 12-year-old Wisconsin victim is recovering and doing Alright, let's get right into the story of what happened with two girls. This comes to us from OprahDaily.com, written by Deanna James in October of 2019. It's called The Complete Timeline and True Story Behind the Slender Man Stabbing. Some bullet points. In 2014, Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire lured their best friend Peyton Littner into the woods in Wisconsin and attacked her. All three girls were 12 years old. Morgan stabbed Peyton 19 times before taking off with Anissa through the woods to find Slenderman. The fictional meme they say ordered the murder of their friend. Peyton is sharing her story for the first time Friday night's episode of 2020. The two-hour special titled The Wicked airs 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on ABC, but that was in 2019. All right, so five and a half years ago, two 12-year-old girls lured their friend into the Makisha woods of Wisconsin and stabbed her 19 times. Why, you ask? To please Slenderman. Now 17, the victim of the senseless attack that rocked parents to their cores Peyton Lutner is speaking out for the first time. She said she wouldn't be who she is today if not for the misdeeds of her then friends. Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire. Peyton accepts the scars she now carries, both physically and psychologically, saying, It's just part of me. I don't think much of them. They will probably go away and fade eventually, but the memory of the horrif horrific attack will never fade. It will remain a stain on pop culture history at as that time in internet meme inspired a real-life attempted murder. ABC's 2020 has been following the horror story closely since the beginning, and on Friday night, the network is airing a two-hour special showcasing Peyton's side of the story. But since it's been half a decade since the encounter dominated headlines, it's possible the facts are a little fuzzy. Read on as we rehash everything that happened from the time Morgan befriended Peyton to a blood-soaked crime scene in the woods. 
Peyton befriends Morgan in the fourth grade. Oh, you gotta watch your kids' friends, man. According to Peyton, picture below, she first approached Morgan because she was sitting alone. After that, the pair took up like all best friends. They hung out after school, had sleepovers, joked like little girls do. Morgan even gave Peyton a sweet nickname, Bella. She was my only friend for a long time, Morgan said to the police in her taped interrogation. Peyton and Morgan's friendship takes a backseat when Anissa enters the picture. Morgan and Anissa became friends two years later, and that's when Peyton said her people, her people, everything went downhill. Morgan and Anissa became obsessed with Slenderman, which scared Peyton, but she said she went along with it anyway. Morgan liked it and thought it was real, and I went along with it. I was supportive because I thought that's what she liked. Slenderman is a creepypasta creation, and not at all real. In 2009, Slenderman gave, was given life in the spooky corner of the internet called Creepypasta, as we've already discussed previously. The three best friends have a sleepover the night before the stabbing. It was Friday night, and she was so, so excited. Peyton's mother, Stacy Lutner, said in a 2015 interview on 2020, According to Peyton, the trio were celebrating Morgan's birthday with a slumber party. But their regular old night of roller skating, pizza, and playing with their American Girl dolls turned odd. Peyton said that looking back, the sleepover was a little different from all their others, as Morgan didn't want to stay up all night. The next morning, they went to the park. I was told if I didn't do something, my family would be in danger, Anissa explained in her tape to interrogation. According to the 12-year-old, she feared that if she didn't honor Slender Man's request to kill Peyton, he would murder her family. The attack first starts in the park bathroom. Anissa tried to knock Bella out. Bella got mad and stuff, and I was pacing in circles, Morgan told police. According to the news... Peyton stayed with the girls, even though they just tried to fight her. Anissa and Morgan led Peyton into the woods, where they finished their attack. Morgan stabs Peyton 19 times on May 31, 2014. Reports vary on exact details, mostly because Morgan and Anissa offered differing stories during their investigations, both pointing the finger at the other about whose idea the attack was initially. But... What is factual is that Morgan stabbed Peyton repeatedly with a kitchen knife while Anissa stood by and stood watch. I've wanted to hurt people before, but they're not nice to me, so they deserve it, Morgan said to a detective. Peyton was stabbed on her chest and abdomen and arm and leg. Brian Hufford, or Huxdorf, a doctor of the Waukesha Memorial Hospital, said to Muir, on 2020. Five wounds on the arm, seven on her leg, and the rest scattered throughout her torso. Peyton was in intensive care for weeks and came through with 25 resulting scars. <clears throat> A biker happened upon the blood-soaked Peyton and called 911. Greg Steinberg was riding his bike that morning. It was a Saturday. According to reports, he took a route through the brush that was chained off and then happened to ride by Peyton, who was lying in a grassy area, 
after crawling out of the thicker woods. She stopped him, asking, Can you help me, please? I've been stabbed multiple times. Steinberg immediately called 911 and offered her some water. On the call, he can be heard comforting Peyton, saying, Honey, he's coming. They'll be here any minute. Soon after, an ambulance arrived. Stacy and Joe Lutner get the news about their daughter. That Saturday morning, a uniformed police officer approached Lutner property. According to Stacy, her first thought was, Something has happened to somebody I love. Both parents said they were blindsided. Minutes later, they rushed to the hospital. Morgan and Anissa run away, but the cops find them shortly after. According to reports, the two girls tore off through the woods on a quest to find Slenderman now that their deed was done. Rolling Stone explains that the mansion where Slenderman mythically dwells is located somewhere within Wisconsin's Nicolette National Forest. Anissa and Morgan are charged and sentenced years later. In December 2017, Anissa received the maximum 25-year years in a mental health facility after pleading guilty to being an accomplice to second-degree intentional homicide. Morgan received 40 years in a mental hospital after pleading guilty to the attempted first-degree intentional homicide. It's a long time, but this is an issue of community protection. This is an issue to be sure there's no recidivism. Recidivism? I don't know what that word means. This is an issue to ensure that Miss Geyser doesn't have a revolving door situation where she ends up back in the community and then things fall apart and she comes back. Ooh, man. And that's the end of that article. My gosh. So that's some of it. Let's see. Let's see if this other article gives us more. I was hoping that one would, just because it said the complete version. <laughs> All right, let me read this one. On May 31st, two 12-year-old girls in Makisha, Wisconsin, stabbed a third girl nearly to death. The girl who's called their plot Stabby Stab Stab said it was intended as a sacrifice to Slender Man. Authorities are still trying to pair as adults pending a mental evaluation. The tragedy here is that all the girls' lives are damaged now, even potentially ruined, over the Slender Man. The girls believe Slendy would appear to them if they killed in his name. They also believe that he had threatened them and their families and could read their minds. Children have always had fanciful flights of imagination. These claims sound much like the Salem witch hunts of the 1690s, when young girls accused each other of riding with the devil. The results panics led to countless false confessions and over 20 executions. The same could probably happen here. And a few days later, around the anniversary of Slenderman's creation, a teen in Cincinnati attacked her mother. The teen, who had a history of mental illness, was obsessed with the character and the lack of detail in this. The previous case points more towards mental illness than anything else. Slenderman then became a focus for a mania that forced these girls to act out violently. Thus far, no more reports of Slenderman-related violence has surfaced. The creators and maintainers of the mythos are adamant about their disapproval. We are not teaching children to believe in a fictional monster, nor are we teaching them to be violent, creepypasta moderator David Morales said. I am deeply sad 
saddened by the tragedy in Wisconsin, and my heart goes out to the families, said Slenderman creator Eric Knudsen. I attempted to contact him for his story to no avail. All right. Knudsen, for his part, stopped development of the character a few years ago. I don't spend a lot of active time on the internet since I usually have a lot of real-life stuff going on. All right. And then we'll read one creepypasta story on it, and then I'll tell you my opinion. All right. My Slender Man Experience by Simply Ross. It was posted two years ago. When I was around five years old, I had a nightmare. The only reason why I remember after all these years, I'm currently 15, is because I kept on having the same dream, but it would pick up where it left off. The first dream I had started with me in the woods, and I was just walking. Then I saw a tall figure in the distance. It stared back at me. I remember thinking, why doesn't it have a face? He was also wearing black. He started walking toward me, and I freaked out. I then woke up. I've never seen or heard of Slenderman before. I mean, I was five. I barely even knew what the internet was. When I was eight or nine, I got into watching gamers on YouTube, and that was about the time Slender, the eight pages, really got popular. Whenever I first watched a YouTuber play it all, I could think, that's the guy from my dreams. At this point, I had already had multiple dreams of this tall, faceless creature, so seeing him on the internet really freaked me out. I continue to have these dreams that pick up where they left off, but not as frequently as I used to when I was younger. This is a true story. I truly have been through all of this, and I don't know what it means. I don't think Slenderman is real, but it's like part of me does want to believe. All right, so... With that being said, um, all these stories that I've just read to you, um, my opinion on it is, like I've said in previous episodes, belief gives things power. So if you're taking that in mind, so these people created a creature, you know, but they created it with the inspiration from folklore and stuff that was already out there. So imagine if there's some kind of spirit or demon behind that stuff, and then you just give it a name, Slenderman, and that thing just attaches to that identity, and people actually believe in this. A ton of people actually believe in this. So you can see the subreddits and the things about people, you know, those two girls that tried to kill their friend for Slenderman and all these other stories of kids running to find Slenderman and stuff like that. There's belief behind that. So with any time there's belief put behind something, you have to be careful about it. All right, we'll take a short break and get right back at it after this. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, spooky fam. 
I'm going to talk to you guys about a really scary true story about the son of Sam. All right. The son of Sam terrorized New York, killing many people at the whims and will. And he said he was taking orders from his dog, who is really a demon, telling him stuff. So I'll read this history.com article to you, and then we'll move on to the Times and see what they had to say. So this is in July 29th, 1976. The Son of Sam Terrorizes New York. Looking for an author besides history.com. Looks like the author is the history.com editors. Okay, then. All right. The so-called Son of Sam pulls a gun from a paper bag and fires five shots at Donna Lori, Lori and Jody Valenti on the Bronx of the Bronx while they were sitting in a car talking. Lori died and Valenti was seriously wounded in the first of a series of shootings by serial killer who terrorized New York City over the course of the next year. Once dubbed the 44 caliber killer, the son of Sam eventually got his name from letters he sent both the police and famed newspaper writer written or writer Jimmy Breslin that said, I'm a monster. I'm the son of Sam. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game. The wee men are the prettiest of all. Sick. The second attack came on October 23rd 1976, when a couple was shot as they sat in their car in Queens. A month later, two girls were talking on a stoop outside of a home when the serial killer approached, asked for directions, and then suddenly pulled a gun out and fired several shots. Joanne Lamino was paralyzed from a bullet that struck her spine, but her friend was not seriously injured. The son of Sam attacked again in January and March of 77. In the latter attack, witnesses provided a description of the killer, an unattractive white man with black hair. After yet another shooting in the rocks in April, the publicity hit a fever pitch. Women, particularly those with dark hair, were discouraged from traveling at night in the city. When the son of Sam missed his intended victims in another murder attempt in June, vigilante groups formed across New York City looking for the killer. His last two victims were shot July 31st, 1977, in Brooklyn. One died. Then police, following up on a parking ticket that had been given out the night, discovered a machine gun in a car belonging to David Brakowitz of Yonkers, New York. When questioned, Brakowitz explained that Sam was his neighbor, Sam Carr, an agent of the devil. Sam transmitted his orders through his pet, Black Labrador. Years later, Berkowitz had shot the dog, complaining that its barking was keeping him from sleeping. After the dog recovered, Berkowitz claimed that it began speaking to him and demanded that he kill people. In an unusual sequence of events, Berkowitz was allowed to plead guilty before claiming insanity and was sentenced to over 300 years in prison. In prison, he later claimed to be a born-again Christian. Ugh. All right, stepping on over to the New York Times. Says Grace notes how a son how a son of Sam detective realized this had to be the guy. 
by James Barron. It was published on 2017. James Justice remembered hanging up the telephone, convinced that he had something. It was August of 77. He was a police detective checking on parking summonses issued in Brooklyn on July 31st, the night the gunman, known as Son of Sam, shot a couple in a car on Bath Beach. He was assigned to look for witnesses who might have seen the serial killer, who by then had taunted police and tabloid columnists alike with his letters. Maybe whoever owned a Ford Galaxy with a parking ticket had seen something. It turned out that the owner of the Galaxy had seen everything, for he was the one who pushed the city's fright level as high as it would go in those pre-color-coded days. Tensions were high that were so high that Mayor Abram Beam directed the police to shoo couples away from places where couples would go to be alone. Suddenly, the fear was that being in such places could make them targets. Suddenly, women with long brown hair were dyeing it blonde and cutting it short, thinking they would be less vulnerable. How different the city seemed then. Emotionally exhausted and almost broke, crime had reached a new high, and jobs were disappearing. Lightning, looting, and lunatics were so far given in New York a heady, angry summer. An editorial writer observed in 77, the first two L words referred to the blackout in July, which had begun to, with lightning strikes and had set off looting in some neighborhoods. The last referred to the man with the forty-four caliber revolver. Starting in July 1976, when he shot and killed Donna Laura, an 18-year-old woman of the Bronx wounded her friend Jody. The gunman preyed on Queens and the Bronx. Joseph Borelli, a police captain and head of the homicide unit for Queens at the time, recalled recently that Christine Friend was killed in Forest Hills in January of 77. He assembled a group of detectives to work on the case. <clears throat> but the shootings continued. By July of 77, five people had been killed and six injured, and the police were inundated with calls from citizens who thought they had seen the killer. We had, I think, 11 lines coming into the station house. The 109th Precinct in Flushing, Queens, the headquarters for the task force that by some accounts had 300 detectives and could keep up with phone calls. Couldn't keep up with phone calls. The registration for one car had, that had gotten a ticket was David Berkowitz of Yonkers address. So they were just going to see if the Yonkers PD had any guy, any idea of who this guy was. The dispatcher was Wheat Carr. Her father, Sam Carr, was later said to have been the object of Mr. Brickwitz's fixation on Sam. According to ladies and gentlemen, the box is burning. Jonathan Mahler's history of the summer of 77 Miss Carr told Mr. Justice about threatening letters from Mr. Brickowitz, and Mr. Carr told the police he had seen Mr. Brickowitz shoot the dog. I was, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the guy, Mr. Justice said. I mean, you're not going to know until you have him right in front of you, but somebody from Yonkers doing down in that neighborhood. A lot of things we used to do on gut feeling. I can't put my finger on it. Something's wrong with this. We've got to go with it. Mr. Justice said he had gone to see the inspector he reported to. He said, how'd it go? I said, I think we got the guy. 
Mr. Justice recalled recently adding that he showed him a copy of his report summarizing the police call known as DD5. He looked at it, he read it, and he said good. All right. The next day, he was scheduled to appear before a grand jury about an unrelated case. He went to the courthouse and arranged to postpone his testimony. By the time he got back to the homicide zone, they had sent the guys up there. Apparently, there was another killing. All right. On the street outside of Mr. Brickhout's apartment building in Yonkers, they found the Ford that had received the ticket in Brooklyn. Before long, Mr. Brakowitz came out, got into the car, and when Mr. and when Detective Felico walked over and ordered him out, Mr. Brakowitz said, you got me. A moment later, after, discuss, after Detective Felico asked who he was, Mr. Brakowitz said, I'm the son of Sam. Mr. Justice said he learned the next morning that Mr. Bukowitz had been captured hearing the news on the radio. So basically he was frustrated he couldn't go to Yonkers because it was outside of his jurisdiction. There were odd coincidences in the Son of Sam case. One was that Mr. Bukowitz had been a postal worker who made $13,000 a year and that after he recovered, Mr. Volante, one of the last victims, went to work for the post office. Mr. Justice mentioned another. When I was in Kings County Hospital, an intensive care unit, Berkowitz was next door in G Building, which was the psych ward. Wow. All right. So that was pretty much the story of the Son of Sam. We'll be right back. All right, let's try this again. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Um, I've started to read this true crime story to you guys, but it just is really, really heavy. So I'm going to try it again, but it involves, you know, the perpetrators were aged between 15 and 17 years old, and they did this to a 12-year-old. So it kind of, you know... It's hard to read, but for the sake of the victim, um, I think it's important we share her story. It has been shared several times, of course. It's not up to us. Um, it got national news just pertaining because of the violent brutality of the crimes and the age of the perpetrators. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. All right, let's try this again. All right, Shanda Scherer was born in Pineville Community Hospital in Pineville, Kentucky on June 6, 1979. She was born to Stephen Scherer and his wife Jacqueline, who is later known as Jacqueline Vaught. After Scherer's parents divorced, her mother remarried and moved the family to Louisville. She there attended and uh, was involved in cheerleading, volleyball, and softball teams. Uh, then they moved in 1991, a year before her death, to New Albany, um, where she enrolled in a middle school and then a Catholic school, um, where she joined the basketball team for the girls. 
Um, the girls that were involved in the murder, the first one is Melinda Loveless. Uh, looking through her history, her father was definitely a sexual deviant. Her mother was as well. And it looks like she tried to commit suicide. So there's a lot of turmoil going on in one of the perpetrator's uh, backstories. Um, Lori Tackett, she was born in Madison, Indiana. Um, her parents were Christian, um, and her dad was a felony two-time in the 1960s. Um, Lori claimed that she was molested a lot as a child. Um, social workers got involved. You know, that they um, would do unannounced visits to ensure child abuse was not occurring, stuff like that. Um, it says Tackett and her mother came into periodic conflict. At one point, her mother went to Hope Rippy's house after learning that Rippy's father had purchased a Ouija board for the girls. She demanded the board be burnt and Rippy's house be exercised. <laughs> um, she became increasingly rebellious and became fascinated with the occult. Um, she began to self-harm, all that kind of stuff. Hope Rippy, um, again, born in Madison, uh, divorced parents, you know, looks like self-harm was part of her childhood as well. And then Tony Lawrence, born in Madison, um, looks like she was abused as well, um, self-harm and attempted suicide in eighth grade. Mm. All right, so... None of their backstories uh, excuse what they did uh, to this person, but it can probably help paint a picture um, of inner conflict, or at least of what's going on inside of each one of these participants in this act, what's going on in their head a little bit. Um, events prior to the murder, let's see. 14-year-old Loveless began dating another girl named Amanda Hervin. Hevern. After Lovelace's father left the family and her mother remarried, Lovelace became, behaved erratically. She got into fights at school, complained of depression, da-da-da. Hevern and Sher Sherer, the victim, met early in the fall semester at in junior high uh, when they got into a fight. However, they became friends while in detention for the altercation and later exchanged romantic letters. Loveless immediately grew jealous of Hevron and Cher's relationship. In early 1991, October, Hevron and Cher attended a school dance where Loveless found and confronted them. Although Hevron and Loveless had never formally ended their relationship, Loveless started date to date another girl. Oh, that was hard to get out. After Hevron and Cher attended a festival together in late October, Loveless began to discuss killing Cher and threatened her in public. Concerned about the effects of their daughter's relationship with Hevron, Cher's parents arranged to have her transferred to a Catholic school in late November. Hevron states she gave letters Loveless sent her containing death threats towards Cher to a youth prosecutor. But the youth prosecutor did never did anything about it, as far as we know. 
So it sounds like she gave the letters, you know, like, hey, this is, could be a danger. That's what it sounds like to me, at least. But they didn't do anything about it. All right. Pre-abduction. All this information also is coming from Wikipedia. So on the night of January 10th, 1992, Lawrence, age 15, Rippy, age 15, Tackett, age 17, drove in Tackett's car from Madison to Loveless's house in New Albany. Rippy and Lawrence, while both friends of Tackett, had not previously met Loveless, who was 16. Upon arrival, they borrowed some clothes from Loveless, and she showed them a knife, telling them she was going to scare Sharer with it. While Tackett, Rippy, and Lawrence had never met Sharer prior to that night, Tackett had already known of the plan to intimidate the 12-year-old girl. Loveless explained to the two other girls that she disliked Sharer for being a copycat and stealing her girlfriend. Tackett let Rippy drive the four girls to Jeffersonville, which is right over the bridge from Louisville, um, where Cher stayed with her father on the weekends, drop, stopping at a McDonald's en route to ask for directions. They arrived at Cher's house shortly before dark. Loveless instructed Rippy and Lawrence to go to the door and introduce themselves as friends of Heverin, Loveless's former and Cher's current girlfriend. girlfriend. When it, then invite Cher to come with them to see Heverin, who is waiting for them at the Witch's Castle, or Mistletoe Falls, a ruined stone house located on an isolated hill overlooking the Ohio River. Oh, I've been there. Cher said she sh could not go because her parents were awake. She told the girls to come back around midnight a few hours later. Loveless was angry at first, but Rippy and Lawrence assured her about returning for Cher later. The four girls crossed the river to Louisville and attended a punk rock show uh, by the band Sunspring at the Audubon Skate Park near Interstate 65. Lawrence and Rippy quickly lost interest in the music and went to the parking lot outside, where they engaged in sexual activities with two boys in Tackett's car. Eventually, the four girls left for Sharer's house. During the ride, Loveless said she could not wait to kill Sharer. However, Loveless also said she just intended to use the knife to frighten her. Then they arrived at Sharer's house in, at 12.30 a.m. Lawrence refused to retrieve Sharer, so Tackett and Rippy went to the door. Loveless hid under a blanket in the back seat of the car with the knife. Abduction. Rippy told Sharer that Heverin was still at the witch's castle. Sharer was reluctant to go with them, yet agreed after changing her clothes. As they got in the car, Rippy began questioning Sharer about her relationship with Heverin. Loveless then sprang out from the backseat, put the knife to Sharer's throat, and began inter interrogating her about her sexual relationship with Heverin. They drove towards Utica in the witch's castle. Tackett told the girls that a local legend said the house was once owned by nine witches, and the townspeople burned down the house to get rid of the witches. At the witches' castle, they took a sobbing share inside, bound her arms and legs with rope. There, Loveless taunted that she had pretty hair and wondered how pretty she would look if they cut it off, which frightened Cher even more. Loveless began taking off Cher's rings and handing each to the girls. At some point, 
Rippy had taken Cher's Mickey Mouse watch and danced to the tune it played. Tackett further taunted Cher, claiming the witch's castle was filled with human remains and Cher would be next. To further threaten Cher, Tackett then retrieved a shirt with a smiley design from the car and lit it on fire, but immediately feared the fire would be spotted by passing cars. So the girls left with Cher. During the car ride, Cher continued begging them to take her back home. Loveless ordered Cher to slip off her bra, which she then handed over to Rippy, who slid off her own bra and replaced it with Cher's while steering the car. They became lost, so they stopped at a gas station and covered Cher in a blanket, while Tackett went inside to ask for directions. Lawrence called a boy she knew in Louisville and chatted for several minutes to ease her worries, but did not mention Cher's abduction. They returned to the car, but became lost again and pulled up to another gas station. There, Lawrence and Rippy spotted a couple of boys and talked to them for before once again getting back into the car and leaving. Arriving sometime later on the edge of the North Woods near Tackett's home in Madison. Torture. Tackett led them to a dark garbage dump off a logging road in a densely forested area. Lawrence and Rippy were frightened and stayed in the car. Loveless and Tackett made Cher strip naked. Then Loveless beat Cher with her fists. Next, Loveless repeatedly slammed Cher's face into her knee, which cut Cher's mouth on her own braces. Again, this is brutal. (laughs) Hope no kitties are listening. Loveless tried to slash Cher's throat, but the knife was too dull. Rippy came out of the car to hold down Cher. Loveless and Tackett took turns stabbing Cher in the chest. They then strangled Cher with a rope until she was unconscious, placed her in the trunk of the car, and told the other two girls Cher was dead. The girls drove to Tackett's nearby home, went inside to drink soda and clean themselves. When they heard Cher screaming in the trunk, Tackett went out to the, with a paring knife and stabbed her several more times, coming back a few minutes later covered in blood. After she washed, Tackett told the girls futures told the girls futures with her rune stones. Oh, so they did a little bit of a cult there. They're just like, oh, you know how we killed that girl? Hey, let's play with these rune stones and tell you your future. <laughs> At 2.30 a.m., Lawrence and Rippy stayed behind as Tackett and Loveless went country cruising, driving to the nearby town of Canaan. Cher continued to make crying and gurgling sounds, so Tackett stopped the car. When they opened the trunk, Cher sat up, covered in blood, her eyes rolled back in her head, unable to speak. Tackett beat her with a tire iron until she was silent, and then told Loveless to smell it. Ew. Kind of sick people. Loveless and Tackett returned to Tackett's home just before daybreak, to clean up again. Rippy asks about Cher, and Tackett laughingly described the torture. The conversation woke up Tackett's mother, who yelled at her daughter for being out late and bringing home the girls, so Tackett agreed to take them home. She drove, the, she drove to the burn pile, where they opened the trunk to stare at Cher. Lawrence refused. Rippy sprayed Cher with Windex and taunted, 
You're not so hot now, are you? Wow. Burns alive. The girls drove to a gas station near Madison High School, pumped some gasoline into the car, and brought two liter bottle of Pepsi. Oh, sorry. Madison Consolidated High School. Tackett poured out the Pepsi and refilled the bottle with gasoline. They drove north of Madison, past Jefferson Proving Ground, to the Lemon Buff off U.S. Route 421, a place known to Rippy. Lawrence remained in the car while Tackett and Rippy wrapped Sharer, who was still alive, in a blanket, carried her to a field by the gravel country road. Tackett made Rippy pour the gasoline on Sharer, and then they set her on fire. Loveless was not convinced Cher was dead, so they returned a few minutes later to pour the rest of the gasoline on her. The girls went to McDonald's restaurant at 9.30 a.m. for breakfast, where they laughed about Cher's body looking like one of the sausages they were eating. Oh, God. That's terrible. Lawrence then phoned a friend and told her about the murder. Tackett then dropped off Lawrence and Rippy at their homes and finally returned to her own home with Loveless. She told Heverin that they had killed Cher and arranged to pick up Heverin later that day. A group of Lo- Loveless's, a friend of Loveless's, Crystal Wathen, came to the Loveless house and they told her what happened. Then the three girls drove to pick up Heverin and take her back to the Loveless house where they told Heverin the story. Both Heverin and Wathen were reluctant to believe the story until Tackett showed them the trunk of the car, where Cher's bloody handprints, socks, still present. Heverin was horrified and asked to be taken home. When they pulled up in front of her house, Loveless kissed Heverin and told her she loved her and pleaded with her not to tell anyone. Heverin promised she would not before entering the house. Oof. Later on the morning of January 11, 1992, two brothers from Canaan were driving towards Jefferson Proving Ground to go hunting when they noticed a body on the side of the road. They called the police at 10.55 and were asked to return to the corpse. David Cam, who was later acquitted of his own family's murders, was one of the, first, was one of the responding officers. Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley and detectives began an investigation collecting forensic evidence at the scene. Small world. David Camp. He's got an, his own <laughs> uh, true crime uh, saga. All right. They initially suspected a drug deal gone wrong and did not believe the crime had been committed by locals. Cher's farm father, Stephen, noticed his daughter was nowhere to be found early on January 11th. After phoning neighbors and friends all morning, he called his wife, or his former wife, Cher's mother, at 1.45 p.m. They met and filed a missing report with the Clark County Sheriff. Um, At 8.20, a hysterical Lawrence and Rippy went to Jefferson County Sheriff's Office with their parents. They both gave very rambling statements, identifying the victim as Shanda, Uh, naming the two other girls involved as best they could, and described the main events of the previous night. Shipley contacted the Clark County Sheriff and was finally made able to match the body of Sher's body to Sher's missing persons report. Detectives obtained dental records that positively identified Sher as the victim. 
Loveless and Tackett were arrested on January 12th. The bulk of the evidence for their arrest warrant was Lawrence's and Rippy's statements. The prosecution immediately declared its intention to try both Loveless and Tackett as adults. For several months, the prosecutors and defense attorneys did not release any information about the case, giving the news media only statements by Lawrence and Rippy. All right, the judicial process, and we're almost finished. All four girls were charged as adults. To avoid the death penalty, the girls accepted plea bargains. Mitigating factors, all four girls had troubled backgrounds with claims of physical and sexual abuse committed by parents or other adults. Lawrence, Rippey, and Tackett all had histories of self-harming behavior. Tackett was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and suffered from hallucinations. Loveless often described as the ringleader in the attack, had the most extensive history of abuse and mental health issues. As someone (laughs) with mental health issues, there is still a line. There is still a line of, you know, you are still in control of your actions. Sometimes those actions don't make sense to, like, the logical you, but it's like, you kind of make decisions whenever you're in your logical brain before you make them in your crazy brain. (laughs) If that makes sense. Like if I know that my logical self loves taking my medicine, I'm going to take my medicine as prescribed. If my illogical brain tells me I don't need it anymore, (laughs) I tend to go with what my logical brain said, you know, before I was in this state. So, mental health or not, I mean, yes, they came from traumatic upbringings, traumatic, and they definitely needed help, all of them. But um, as soon as it became kidnapping, torture, and burning their this person alive, mm, no. Some of that you have to take personal responsibility for. All right, so their sentences. Tackett and Loveless were sentenced with 60 years in the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. Tackett was released in 2018 and served probation for one year. Loveless was released in September 2019. Rippy was sentenced to 60 years with 10 years suspended for mitigating circumstances, plus 10 years of medium supervision probation. On appeal, a judge reduced the sentence to 35 years in exchange for her cooperation. Lawrence was allowed to plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement and has been sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Hmm. I don't like that. So it sounds like Okay, so Loveless's attorney was arguing in an appeal that she was profoundly, and I quote, retarded, end quote, by child abuse. Um, oh my gosh. If the judge accepted those arguments, Loveless could have been re- retried or released outright. Um, but in 2008, the request was rejected. Okay.
Yeah, it looks like both appeals were rejected. All right, releases. Lawrence was released on December 14, 2000, after serving nine years. She remained on parole until December 2002. On April 28, 2006, Rippy was released on parole after serving 14 years of her original sentence. She remained on supervised parole for five years until 2011. Tackett was released in 2018, the 26th anniversary of Cher's death, after serving nearly 26 years and had complete, completed an additional year of parole. Loveless was released in 2019 after serving 26-plus years in prison. She will serve parole in Jefferson County, Kentucky. So that's in Louisville. So, like, these are current dates, y'all. Like, like this is still an ongoing thing. Um, I mean, the murders happened. These ladies spent, you know... A quarter of their life in jail. So let's read the aftermath. And then, you know, I think that's pretty much it on this one. All right, so the aftermath. During the loveless sentencing hearing, extensive open court testimony revealed that the father, Larry, had abused his wife, his daughters, and their children. Consequently, he was arrested in, January, in February 1993 on charges of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. Most of the crimes occurred around 68 to 77. Larry remained in prison for over two years awaiting trial. However, a judge eventually ruled that all charges except one count of sexual battery had to be dropped due to statute of limitations, which was five years in Indiana. Loveless pleaded guilty to the one count of sexual battery. He received a sentence and served time. Da da da. Cher's father, Stephen Cher, died of alcoholism in 2005 at the age of 53. In an interview with Cher, Shanda Cher's mother, uh, Jacqueline Vaught, on the investigation discovery series Deadly Women, Vaught stated that Cher's father was so destroyed by his, by his daughter's murder that he did everything he could to kill himself besides put a gun to his head, and that he drank himself to death. The man definitely died from a broken heart. And that was in quotes. Um... The Shanda Share Scholarship Fund was established in 2009. The fund planned to provide scholarships to two students per year um, from Prosser School of Technology in New Albany, one scholarship to a student who is coming, continuing his or her education, and the other scholarship to a student who is beginning his or her career. Must buy tools or other work equipment. All right, and that was set up by Shanda's mother. Um, in 2018, Shanda's mother, uh, Jacqueline Vaught, stated the scholarship fund had been depleted and is no longer accepting donations. <laughs> it looks like, uh, Cher's mother, um, let's call her Jackie, Jacqueline. Jackie Vaught made her first contact with Melinda Loveless since the trials, um, although indirectly. Vaught donated a dog named Angel in Shanda's name to Loveless to train in the Indiana Canine Assistance Network program uh, through Project to Heal. 
which provides service pets to people with disabilities. Loveless trained dogs for the program for several years. Vought reported that she had endured criticism over the decision, but defends it saying, it's my choice to make. She's talking about Shanda, is my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. Vought stated that she hoped to donate a dog every year in honor, in honor of Sh Shanda. Um, a documentary produced by Episode 11 Productions called Charlie Scars captured Vought's decision to allow Loveless to train dogs in Shanda's name. The film also has three interviews with Loveless. All right. Um, looks like this um, tragedy has uh, inspired literature and stage plays. Oh my gosh. Um, Law and Order, Cold Case, Dr. Phil, um, Lifetime, Killer Kids, a uh, bunch of television programs, and also in art um, was this mentioned. But my goodness, um, wow. I just, I mean, what do you do after that? That's just, that's so much. I mean, these poor children, you know, and I want to say poor children because they all had a rough go at it. They all had a rough upbringing. But as soon as they turned their victimness into cold brutality to the 12-year-old, that's whenever it stopped being those poor, innocent kids. That's where I agree that they should have been tried as adults. They snuffed out a life that was barely even started. 12 years old? You're barely even started at 12 years old. You're still a child. Like, you're figuring out what you like and what you don't like at 12 years old. Like, <laughs> I just, I can't imagine. And that's... That one was hard for me to read. Um, but yeah, I think that'll do it for this episode. And then we will get back into the spookier side of things on the next episode. Um, so be sure to check out our Facebook page. Uh, let us know if you have a request for a specific story and we'll add it to the lineup. If you feel comfortable posting about your paranormal experience, please feel free to post as well. Um, the Facebook page is Paranormal Stories. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. Um, just join our page there and post away. Um, if you want to remain anonymous, just not sure how people will take your paranormal story, uh, feel free to message me directly, Andrew Chapman. Um, I'm the admin on that page, and you can message me your stories, and I'll make sure they get included in the podcast or on the page, uh, whatever you desire. All right, that'll do it for me today. I hope you all have a great week, and stay spooky, my friends.